0: This podcast is brought to you by Reynolds & Reynolds, the industry leader in automotive technology. Learn how operating differently can help you overcome the pressures facing your dealership today at reyrey.com slash operate differently. That's R-E-Y-R-E-Y dot slash operate dash differently.
1: Welcome to Daily Drive for Friday, September 15th, 2023. I'm Jamie Butters, Executive Editor of Automotive News here in Detroit. And I'm Jake Neer in Detroit, in for Kellen Walker. As you may have heard, the UAW has launched a historic strike against each of the Detroit Three simultaneously. And because of that, we're changing things up here a bit on Daily Drive today to focus on what we know so far about this story and the issues surrounding it.
2: In just a minute, we'll bring in automotive news reporter Michael Martinez, who has had a long night and day so far covering this strike for us. But first, here's a quick recap of the events of the last several hours. Nearly
1: 13,000 hourly workers at three large assembly plants went on strike against the Detroit Three early this morning. Never in the UAW's 88-year history has it attempted a simultaneous strike against Ford, General Motors, and Chrysler, which, of course, is now part of Stellantis. At midnight, workers started picketing outside GM's Wentzville Assembly Plant near St. Louis, Ford's Michigan Assembly Plant west of Detroit, and the Stellantis-Toledo Assembly Complex in Ohio. The union plans to expand the work stoppage at yet-to-be-determined intervals to ratchet up pressure on the automakers. It's a novel tactic UAW President Sean Fain has branded a stand-up strike to mirror the sit-down strikes of the UAW's early years. Fain took to Facebook Live shortly before the strike began last night. The money is there, the cause is righteous, the world is watching, and the UAW is ready to stand up. This is our defining moment. Fain joined workers on the picket line at midnight at Ford's Michigan Assembly Plant. It's a shame we got to be out here right now to get our share of justice, but we're going to do what we got to do to get it. Our members are willing what next? Wait on the companies to get busy and, and take care of their workers. You know, until they do, we'll be out here doing what we got to do. And, and if they don't do it, we'll keep, we'll keep escalating things and uh, it's going to get bigger. This morning, GM CEO Mary Barra appeared on CNBC. Our team has been working since July 18th
0: uh, to bargain in good faith. We've had over a thousand demands. Um, I'm extremely frustrated and disappointed. We don't need to be on strike right now.
1: Here to help us sort through all of it is Michael Martinez, who covers Ford and the UAW for us here at Automotive News. Hey, Mike. Hey, Jamie. So why why these plants? What's the significance of
3: them? What's the strategy? Well, the significance is really that they're not that significant. They're, <laughs> they're still important, right? they are a lot of midsize truck and SUV production, profitable models, popular models like the Canyon or the Bronco or the Ranger or the Wrangler, but they're not the heavy hitters. It's not F-150 and Silverado. It's not some of the full-size SUVs. And the goal of this stand-up strike is to snowball and ratchet up the pressure. So in theory, it would make the automakers more willing to bend to the union's demands at the bargaining table if they can say, well, you don't want to go up anymore on wages? There goes your full-size truck production. We'll take that down tomorrow. Mm -hmm. So this was just the first
1: step of what's supposed to be a multi-step process. I guess I'm confused why it even needs to be a multi-step process. It seemed like uh, the talks were kind of gaining steam after a little bit of a slow start. They really have been ahead of the standard practices in previous contracts because Sean Fain has set this much more aggressive timeline. When do we think they might resume negotiations? He said last night that if they went on strike, they wouldn't negotiate any more on Friday. And Maybe they would if there was new offers, but they kind of had a new offer last night and haven't spent a lot of time at the table since.
3: They're expected to pick back up on Saturday after the union goes through this rally with Senator Bernie Sanders in downtown Detroit. Mm-hmm. Sean Fain's also supposed to visit Toledo on Friday as well. But you talked about maybe some of the momentum that appeared to be there really stalled in the last couple hours we know that the union presented a counter proposal to ford at 8 p.m i'm told sean fain was physically at the table there <laughs> we know he was physically at the table at other automaker bargaining sessions that evening as well but i'm told the characterization of those talks were kind of superficial and there wasn't a whole lot of movement and after that 10 p.m announcement naming what plants would go out on strike nothing happened
1: you know and it's maybe surprising. I think it was to me just the idea he had talked about how, you know, 1159 on the 14th was not a point of reference. It was a deadline. And, you know, if you have a deadline on a negotiation, you know, at some point you get to the, you know, quote, last best offer. And you know, you can't get to that before, say, the last hour, right? Or you've given in too soon. And so to really shut down the talks more than two hours before the deadline, I, don't, I'm, I can understand why Mary Barra would be frustrated.
3: Mary Barra is frustrated, Jim Farley's frustrated, uh, all of the companies really. It could be insinuated pretty easily, I think. I think there's a compelling argument to say that the union almost wanted this strike mm-hmm. for every reason that the automakers have said, for the fact that they really pre-planned A lot of this, Mm -hmm. right? They pre-branded the strike as a stand-up strike. They told us the locations a couple hours in advance. They told us that they were going to do this a couple days in advance. They had that rally, Friday rally with Bernie Sanders scheduled for a little while now. Mm -hmm. Arguably they could have still done that if they had deals and it could have been a victory lap for them. But it just really seemed like as the days went on, the union really wanted this strike. It also could be argued maybe they needed this strike.
1: Yeah. I mean, certainly what Sean Fain was saying about, you know, his frustration that the automakers weren't coming back with, uh, you know, significant counteroffers until the last week or so that he felt like they waited so long. He just wasn't going to do it all in the last week. And if they were going to wait until a week or so before the contract is expired, then by golly, they could wait for him to have a strike.
3: I mean, let's be honest. There was still a week to go. There were still days to go. And Let's be fair. The automakers, they've put the numbers out publicly. So let's look at those numbers. Mm -hmm. They've moved from the high single digits to the low double digits in wage gains up to 20%. These would be record contracts, the most generous in the history of the automakers in the union. The UAW, meanwhile, has moved slightly down from its 40% wage gain demand down to 36. It hasn't moved any further than that. And we've also been told that there's been very little, if not no movement on any of their other demands. Mm. So the argument Sean Fain's making that the companies aren't being serious with their proposals is sort of hard to digest when you actually see the numbers.
1: Yeah. I mean, I I can understand the mindset of starting off at 40 or 45% and, and being willing to come down to something uh, still historically huge uh, along the lines of the 25%, I think, that UPS got, that the Teamsters got from UPS. But to cling to all those other things, many of which are non-starters, the, the four-day work week, the return of pensions, uh, the jobs bank, um, it's, it's really hard to see any of those coming back. They were uh, certainly with the pensions, maybe the jobs bank, you know, retiree health care. These were the things that really sent GM and Chrysler into bankruptcy in the first place.
3: I think one of the things that's worth pointing out is that the two sides have very different definitions of basic facts here. Hmm. Ford put out in the last couple of days that doubling their labor costs, which is what the union's demands would do, would put them into bankruptcy. Over the past four years, they would have lost $14 billion. The union, Sean Fain, has said the companies can afford to double our salaries and still make money. That's just a fundamental disagreement, apparently. They also disagree on the definition of what a tier is. Mm -hmm. The companies have a strict definition that it's different wage rates that would pay people differently at the top rate. The union says the growing period that would pay everybody the same rate eventually is still a tier. Because even in a particular moment, somebody is making... A different amount than somebody else on that same assembly line. So it's really hard to come to an agreement when you can't even agree on basic facts.
1: So I'm Mike, you were out at Michigan Assembly last night in the in the dark <laughs> <laughs> gathering <laughs> reporting, talking to people. And Jake, you were out at the picket line in front of Ford's Michigan Assembly plant this morning. What was the atmosphere like out there?
2: Yeah, I think that things had probably quieted down quite a bit by late this morning compared to what things were like at midnight. Uh, There were probably about 20, maybe two dozen uh, local 900 picketers out on Michigan Avenue at that point, Uh, but the mood was pretty upbeat. I talked with uh, Pete Hatko, who's been a system process coordinator at the plant for 33 years through a number of contract rounds. Uh, Although he said this was his first strike, he laid out his frustrations with the automakers this time around.
4: For me, I mean, you know, obviously, uh, we've seen things back when they did the bailouts for the other two companies, for GM and Chrysler, which we gave up a lot of stuff, so we didn't have to. And, you know, we're looking to recoup some of that. And obviously, you know, our wage with cost of living and inflation. So we'll see where they hit with the uh, percentage on what we offered and what they countered with.
2: And I heard something similar from Local 900's Sarah Vinson.
1: A couple of contracts back when they were in financial trouble and we gave up everything to support them, they promised us that we would get everything back and they've taken more than give us back. So we just want back what the things we had before.
2: I also happened to speak with Sarah Vinson's husband, Jason Vinson. I asked him about how he felt about the leadership from the top now with UAW president Sean Fain and how it's affecting his own personal interest and engagement with this round of talks.
3: Honestly, um, it's different because we're not used to that. He's coming with a different plan, you know, with the live stream, letting everybody know what's going on, what's going on behind closed doors. So I I like it. You know, it's, it's, it's a great thing.
2: And then finally, you know, one of the workers I spoke with, I asked how long they're prepared to be out on the picket line. And, you know, they paused. It was a very pregnant pause there. And they said what pretty much everyone else says, which is as long as it takes. That's sort of the, you know, the, the uh, throwaway response to that question. But when I noted the hesitancy in their voice, they just said, I've got to watch what I'm what I say. So I guess take what you will from that.
1: Yeah, it's it's uh, it's tough to be on strike, Uh, even with strike pay. Of course, that doesn't even kick in until they've been out for a week. Uh, If they rotate these plants every week, you know, no one will get strike pay. Uh, They would just uh, be, you know, out and not getting paid. And then they would go back to work. Right. Or is that would that be different?
3: So our understanding is that legally, if you are on strike, you can go back to work and then back on strike only one time. But the thinking from the union is that that's not what they would do. This is just supposed to expand. They would Mm -hmm. not call back necessarily any plants that are already out.
1: Michigan Assembly would not return to production until there's a tentative agreement. Exactly. Gotcha. Good to know. I was a little uh, taken aback by uh, Sarah's assertion that uh, they were promised that they would get everything back, uh, that they had given up Uh, I don't know if some of the union leaders maybe said that. I certainly have never heard anyone from the automakers say that something like uh, pensions or jobs banks or anything like that would be coming back.
3: I think you could argue that maybe it's the case with COLA because technically in the contracts, the language on COLA was suspended. Mm. It was not eliminated. So I think the workers expected it to be unsuspended at some point. But I think maybe it really does get into a bigger issue of perception and something that Sean Fain's really tapped into through all his live streams and through rallying the members like that that one worker told you, Jake, and has really got them in a certain sense all on the same page, whether it's factually accurate or not, <laughs> that they believe this is what they are owed and they're going to stay out until they get it. Mm-hmm.
1: And, you know, it's been an unusual communications Uh, strategy, right? His predecessors did not do anything like that, but they had such a different environment in which to negotiate. They had, you know, of course they were not elected by members, so they weren't really in danger of getting thrown out of office if people didn't like the contract they negotiated. And they had a strong machine behind them. They had all those local leaders who put them into place uh, that would help make sure to drive a vote home or just keep people in line, get them rallied around it. He's had to go out and kind of build this almost grassroots organization on the fly after <laughs> getting, you know, a narrow victory in that first election. Um, does it seem like he's he has won people over? Are they kind of on his side now?
3: To a certain extent, yes. Although I'll say it does seem like there's a low rumbling in the background over this strike strategy of only taking out a few plants at a time. You saw some comments on social media, especially during his recent live streams of workers questioning that strategy and saying, we feel if we're going to strike, we should all strike together. And if you really think about it, for as much as he rails against the tier system, he's almost creating different tiers of workers himself by having those currently on the job making full pay versus those on strike who would eventually be making strike pay versus maybe some who may not get strike pay because their plants closed due to a part
2: shortage. Very interesting. Uh, unintended consequences all around. Mike, thank you so much for joining us today on Daily Drive. Thanks, guys. Coming up, we'll switch gears a little bit, talk about the rising cost of EV repair and what that means for dealership service departments. That's next on Daily Drive.
0: Economic uncertainty, vehicle affordability, and ever-increasing customer expectations are threatening the profitability and efficiency gains you've made over the last couple of years. You may be finding the strategies you've used to improve performance in the past just aren't as effective as they once were.
4: You offer online options so customers can begin the buying process remotely, but your salespeople have to rebuild the deal or correct it during the in-store appointment. You ask your advisors to be proactive about calling customers to get work approved, but still wind up with occupied bays and stalled jobs when the customer doesn't answer the phone. Your business office clerks are trying to process steel jackets faster, but funding still takes weeks. The strategies you've used to improve performance in the past just aren't as effective as they once were. Getting better at outdated and inefficient processes will only get you so far. Let's face it, Netflix isn't a household name because they got really good at mailing DVDs. And nearly half of Apple's revenue comes from the iPhone, not from the computers the company was founded on. These companies evolve as new challenges presented themselves instead of sticking with the status
2: quo. It's time for a mindset shift. It's time to operate differently.
0: Finding new and innovative ways to operate is essential to effectively managing the pressures facing your dealership. Visit reyrey.com slash operate differently to get started. That's com slash operate dash differently.
2: The auto industry's shift to carbon neutrality is here and it's accelerating, but is it enough?
5: This is a moral imperative, an economic imperative, a moment of peril, but also a moment of extraordinary possibilities. No more
4: hesitancy, no more excuses, no more waiting for the others to move first. There is simply no more time for that.
2: Driving to Zero is a new podcast series from Automotive News that looks at the auto industry's roadmap to carbon neutrality. We take a big picture look at the environmental, political, and social trends pushing the move toward a greener future. And we pull back the curtain on how these decisions are being made at the highest levels. I said, you know, the, the headline that you need is, is, GM believes in an all-electric future. And I think Dan Ammon and Mary Barra pretty much said the same thing, which is, is like, but, but we, we don't. Spoiler alert, they came around to that idea. Find out how and much more. I'm Jake Neer. Join me and Automotive News Executive Editor Jamie Butters on Driving to Zero, available now wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back
1: to Daily Drive. I'm Jamie Butters with Jake Neer. Collision repair costs for EVs in both parts and labor and the length of time it takes to complete repairs when compared with internal combustion engine vehicles are growing exponentially, according to the latest study by CCC Intelligent Solutions. Kyle Krumloff is Director of Industry Analytics at CCC. He spoke with Automotive News Senior Editor Dan Schein about EVs and the ramifications for the collision industry.
5: Kyle, thanks so much for joining me today. Thank you, Dan. Thanks for having me. So uh, i got your most recent CCC uh, report on vehicle complexity and and how what that all means uh, for insurance and for repair uh, claims and uh, collision repair and I'm reminded we talked a little bit before I hit the record button here about all the different kind of safety features that are on vehicles I'm lucky enough at Automotive News we get vehicles to test every once in a while and I'm currently driving this very nice Mercedes that's you know, my my own vehicle is probably like one one hundredth uh, worth. You know, as much as this Mercedes, but there's all sorts of technology in here, and you just feel like you're surrounded in bubble wrap. It's all wonderful, but that also leads to if I, if I run into something, leads to more more issues, more complexity when I when I want to get it fixed, right?
4: Yeah, absolutely. So as a you know as a vehicle owner, obviously you know considering. Kind of what happens on the back end should should something happen to that vehicle should be a major consideration um, and where you take that vehicle to have it repaired. And then for shops, as we were talking about earlier, you know, when that vehicle has uh, those ADAS features, whether it's forward collision warning, adaptive cruise control, automatic emergency braking, et cetera, uh, shops, you know, should be uh you know scanning and diagnosing those vehicles to make sure those systems uh what to verify whether or not those systems have been damaged and then going through and performing any calibrations to make sure that those systems work following the completion of any of any repairs you know having the space and the tooling to do that is you know part of the modernization of any of any repair shop or repair facility
5: a lot of things we talk about when we cover we write about collision repair and it's a lot of dealerships. Do you want to be in the collision repair business or don't you want to be in the compli- collision repair business? And like what you say is if you want to be in, you're going to have to invest a little bit more than than what you have right now when it comes to more complex vehicles, whether they be EVs or just, you know, any modern vehicle, even with a combustion engine or EV, is going to have kind of these complex systems on them. Yeah.
4: And the, well, the options, if you if you don't invest in, you know, especially in the calibration side of things, um, then it's making sure that you have the, the right partnerships, uh, whether it's a dealership or some other you know outside entity that you can uh, sub out that work to. So it just once again, it adds that additional layer of complexity. And if you're subbing that work out. You know that requires additional time in getting the vehicle repaired and additional costs as well with getting it towed, et cetera
5: so talk of, a few little bit about the numbers that you've had in your most recent report about you know how much longer they're taking these type of comp- complex vehicles to get into the shop, how much longer they're taking to get out of the shop, how much costly they costlier they are
4: yeah there are a number <laughs> there's a number of ways to cut to slice and dice the data to cut it, Dan. So, you know, we can go through a couple of different layers of that. I prepared a couple of different things to look at, uh, whether it's with regard to electric vehicles or non-electric vehicles. If you want to talk about those, Uh, we certainly can. And also in in hindsight, 2022 was a horrendous year when it came to uh, everything from Vehicle repair costs to cycle cycle times were abhorrent in uh, 2022, and seem to be on the way, uh, somewhat on the way back to some semblance of normalcy. You know, here in 2023, they've improved drastically, anywhere from five to seven days, better than we saw in 2022 from overall cycle times. When we get into electric vehicle repairs, if we're looking at overall cost to have those types of vehicle repairs compared to non-electric vehicles. Uh, you could be talking about, on average, anywhere from 50% or more in total repair costs. However, when we dig deeper into that data and look at vehicles by age, which is probably a much more relevant analysis because electric vehicles are obviously going to be much more new in the car park relative to The average car park for non-electric vehicles, you're still looking at about a 15 to 25 percent difference in the cost to have those those vehicles repaired, and a lot of that is coming from labor of getting those vehicles fixed. It's not a it's not necessarily a parts thing.
5: And the labor just that your shops need to hire more skilled people and they have to pay them more? Is that where the the cost comes in? You know, it seems to be coming
4: from a number of facets. So going back to that modernization concept that we were talking about earlier, one is, you know, making sure that you have the proper configuration for your shop to work on these vehicles, regardless of the type of vehicle it is. Second of all, if you're working on electric vehicles, uh, making sure that you have a charger or set up chargers to uh, maintain those vehicles or charge them while they're in your shop, retooling is another facet to this. Um, and then there's also the training, but also the continuous education that's required, especially if you're certified through, um, through an OEM, you know, you have to send your folks to get continuing education on at least an annualized basis, as I understand it. So, you know, all of those things have cost, and you have to pay people while they're at those trainings, uh, cause typically they work on an hourly basis. So all of that has cost. And, um, you know, shops, whether it's a, 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 you know, an independent shop or part of an
5: MSO, um, they've got to make sure that they're getting their margins. And you mentioned earlier, too, about space EVs, especially the kind of the barriers that you put around, you have to have a little bit more, you know, safety zone, I guess you would say, uh, for when you work on EV. So then your footprint has to expand if you want to, again, work on some of these newer vehicles
4: having the appropriate storage uh, especially you know outside outside the building so you can separate uh, vehicles in case there's risk of a uh, fire or otherwise um, another component to space that i've as i understand it is having places to store you know components of the vehicle so for example when you have to disassemble it whether it's you know exterior pieces fenders hoods etc or interior pieces you have to take the seats out for example usually those are you know, leather or other you know high quality materials. You don't want those to get damaged. So you have to have a place to store those.
5: It makes me think I'm, I maybe I don't want to be in the collision business. Uh, <laughs> there's a lot to it. It can be also I think must be lucrative because there's the costs are going up, but but all the associated costs that you have to put into it seem like it's uh, it, it, it's daunting. Well,
4: absolutely. I mean, costs are going up for everybody across the entire and across the entire ecosystem. Whether you're a, a repair shop parts supplier because you know it's cost cost more from a labor standpoint to produce the goods also to ship uh, those goods um, and there's been a lot of changes from that standpoint um, as well as from you know the insurance standpoint making sure these you know making sure that they're remaining profitable coming off of a couple of very very challenging years um, and then obviously whether you're an oem that's you know dealing specifically in evs and electric native um, manufacturer, or if you're a legacy manufacturer, you have a lot of changes happening internally that you have to address that all come with costs. Um, so everybody is being, uh, everybody has to confront the the escalating costs within this ecosystem.
5: So to sum it all up all that, you've got some increased cycle times. It's I think it's getting taking longer, taking it's costing more. What can a collision repair shop do to kind of improve on these? times and and costs. I know AI is part of you know AI seems to be the magic bullet for a lot of things. Are there things that shops can do to kind of reduce the cycle times and reduce the costs? Yeah, well, you know, the way that we
4: generally look at cycle times, you know, obviously there's the upfront aspect which if you think about what CCC does in a lot of the solutions that we have in digitizing the claims experience, you know, we can provide a lot of a number of solutions that help can help to enable and make the front end part of the claims process much more efficient. The challenge, obviously, challenges obviously are obviously on the back end when it comes to actually getting the parts in, getting the vehicle into the shop, having enough capacity to do those repairs. And obviously, as as we mentioned earlier, um, you know, 2022 is a very very tough year for this especially uh, because of labor challenges, supply chain challenges. You had obviously vehicle values were very high as well. So meaning heavier hit vehicles were getting fixed, which also decreased capacity. So the convergence of all those factors made it a very difficult year. So, you know, if, if you are trying to create efficiency, you know, at your shop, you know, once again, I, I think that CCC is a company that can definitely help on the front end of that so on that side with regard to once you get those vehicles uh, in the shop, then it becomes really down to, you know, overall operational efficiency within, within the shop itself. And that's not something that I have a lot of insight in per se as to how shops can become more efficient once the, sh- once the vehicles get in.
5: Kyle, it was great chatting with you about uh, vehicle complexity and what it all means in the re- repair business. Thanks for the time.
4: Yeah. Thank you, Dan.
1: Kyle Krumloff is director of industry analytics at CCC. He spoke with Automotive News senior editor, Dan Schein. That's Daily Drive for today.
2: I'm Jamie Butters. And I'm Jake Neer in for Kellen Walker. Thanks again to Michael Martinez for joining us today. You can get the latest news on the UAW strike, service and parts, and everything happening in the auto industry at autonews.com.
1: Come back on Monday for a conversation with Ford Blue President Kumar Galhotra. If you enjoy the podcast, remember to like, leave a review and subscribe so you never miss an episode.